Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New, New York Historical's president and CEO, and it really is a great thrill for me to welcome you this evening to our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. On view right now are two marvelous exhibitions. One, uh, the Battle of Brooklyn just had a terrific review in the Wall Street Journal this morning. The other, uh, which is uh, called Campaigning for the Presidency, um, is an exhibition that focuses on the 1960s, but uh, given that contentious period, probably could not be more germane today. Um, I am sure that you'll want to see both of those exhibitions if you haven't seen them already. And on uh, the subject of what you are or aren't already, I hope that all of you are members. If not, um, please pick up a brochure, our new brochure on your way out and join. Your support goes to, uh, goes to fund everything that we do here at New York Historical and um, it really counts. So, uh, so please, please do join if you're not a member yet. Tonight's program, Leaders in War, George Marshall, is a distinguished Lerman Fellow at New York Historical Society lecture. I'd like to thank our great trustee, Mr. Lewis Lerman, for his support in creating this series and for all his fine work as a distinguished and valued member of our Board of Trustees. I also want to make a brief pitch for a wonderful new book by Mr. Lerman, which is out, I think, in January but which I've had the chance, great chance, to see in galleys. The book is called Churchill, Roosevelt, and Company, Studies in Character and Statecraft. As always, Mr. Lerman's beautiful writing and extraordinary talent for conveying the drama of human interaction at important junctures in history or at work in the book, making its account of war and politics under Churchill and FDR a totally compelling read. I know that many of you in the audience are interested, keenly interested in this period, and uh, that you'll find the book valuable, provocative, and exciting as a contribution to the field. And you can order it on Amazon now. Um, before I uh, introduce our speaker, I want to thank, in addition to our trustee, Lou Lerman, other trustees in attendance this evening, our amazing board chair, Pam Schaffler. And I want to thank Pam for her extraordinary work as leader of this institution. I also want to thank and recognize trustees Patricia Klingenstein, Suzanne Peck, Joel Pickett, Rick Reese, Ira Unschuld, and Michael Weisberg. Haven't missed anyone, have I? Good. Thank you so much to all of you for all you do on behalf of this great institution. You'll hear from my colleague, Dale Gregory, our Vice President for Public Programs at the close of this event, but I want to thank her also for all the splendid work that she's done, which the fruits of which you see in our great new brochure. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. There will be a formal book signing following the program, and copies of our speakers' books will be available for sale in our museum kiosk store right outside on our Central Park West side. We are so, so very pleased to welcome back Andrew Roberts, the Distinguished Lehrman Fellow at the New York Historical Society. Professor Roberts is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in London and is the recipient of the 2016 Bradley Prize. 
He also serves as a visiting professor in the War Studies Department at King's College London. In 2012, he was awarded the William Penn Prize, and in 2007, he delivered the prestigious White House Lecture. For his book, Napoleon, A Life, Professor Roberts was the 2014 winner of the Grand Prix of the Fondation Napoleon and of the Los Angeles Times Biography Prize in 2015. He's the author and editor of 12 books, including Masters and Commanders, and he is now writing a biography of Winston Churchill. Before I invite Andrew Roberts to the stage, I'd like to ask you, as always, to please make sure that anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming Andrew Roberts to the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honor to be invited to address you again this evening. And thank you very much indeed, Louise, uh, for those very kind words. Uh, I too have read Lou Lerman's book on uh, Churchill and Roosevelt that's about to be published. Uh, it really is a fantastically impressive work of scholarship uh, and beautifully written. And as somebody who's uh, writing a biography of Churchill, um, it really was incredibly irritating to see all this new information. Uh, <laughs> which has forced me to go to uh, archives I hadn't uh, factored in at all. Um, but there we are. I do recommend it very highly to you. I'd like to take you back to Tuesday the 16th of December 1947 to a dinner party that Winston Churchill's wife Clementine gave in London in honour of the US Secretary of State, General George Catlett Marshall who was in Britain at the time for the London Conference of Powers on Germany. The conference had opened on the 25th of November, but had broken down in discord three weeks later, on the same day as the dinner party, over the Soviet government's demands for debilitating reparations against Germany. Basically, uh, they'd shipped, the Russians had shipped half of um, Germany's heavy industrial plant back to Russia in 1945, um, but that wasn't enough for them. The other guests at the dinner included um, Churchill's godson, Freddie, the second Earl of Birkenhead, um, Lord and Lady Camrose, who owned the Daily Telegraph, were great friends of the Churchills. In fact, um, Lord Camrose, after the war, got together a uh, fund to buy Churchill a Rolls-Royce, which was jolly generous of him. Um, the war hero, General Sir Robert Laycock, and the Tory politician, Oliver Stanley. The conference had ended in dismal failure half an hour before Clementine reported to her husband, but Mr. Marshall did not refer to it once. Churchill was taking four... Uh, the reason he wasn't there at the dinner party was that he'd taken four weeks off from his work as leader of the opposition at the time to go to the wonderful Marmunia Hotel in Marrakesh uh, in, uh, in Morocco to, uh, to write books and uh, work on his memoirs and to paint a few paintings. The idea of somebody today being able, a leader of the opposition, being able to take off four weeks um, uh, in a freezing cold London winter um, is, quite, uh, is quite remarkable. Although actually sometimes I rather wish Jeremy Corbyn, uh, the British <laughs> leader of the opposition, <laughs> he could take longer if he needed uh, to. 
Clementine continued um, in this letter to uh, reporting to uh, her husband. He talked much about you and Mr. Roosevelt, with whom it seems he often disagreed and whom sometimes he did not consult. He said that he, the president, would direct his mind like a shaft of sunlight over one section of the whole subject to be considered, leaving everything else in outer darkness. He did not like his attention called to aspects um, he had not mastered or which from lack of time or disinclination he had disregarded. Mind you, he did not actually use those words, uh, wrote uh, Clementine, but the gist, and I thought much more, were implied. And Clementine was right. Um, and reporting Marshall accurately. He had never slipped into the dangerous vortex of friendship with FDR, as several other cabinet members and political cronies had, but always insisted on being called General rather than George, and not once visiting Hyde Park until the president's funeral. It's a marvellous story of a meeting in uh, July 1939 in the White House to consider the issue of um, sending airplanes to Britain in the case of a, um, of a um, French and British defeat on the continent. They were the, the staff, uh, US um, Army staff, was looking that far ahead, um, and this was before the war had even broken out in, in July 1939, and all of the generals at the meeting agreed with the president that it was uh, very important to get as many planes over as, as quickly as possible, and only George Marshall uh, stood out and said... Um, and said, no, there hadn't been enough training, they hadn't worked out where the airfields uh, were going to be and the, and the logistics of the thing hadn't gone, been gone into, and so it couldn't be made into a plan until a lot more work was done on it, and he, uh, and he told the president he was wrong. And as they came out of the meeting, one of the uh, more senior generals said to Marshall, Marshall by that stage was Deputy Chief of Staff, of Army Staff, and said to uh, Marshall, well, um, that's your chance of being the uh, US Army Chief of Staff um, dead uh, and, uh, and gone. Um, you, uh, you were the only person to stand up to the general. Sure enough, uh, only uh, two months later, it was indeed Marshall who was chosen. So um, it's a good example, I think, of uh, the way FDR actually, and as did uh, Winston Churchill with Alan Brooke, um, actually went against uh, choosing a yes man uh, in this absolutely key role. At the dinner party that I was talking about, Marshall was abroad and amongst admirers and friends. He was relaxing immediately after the disastrous conclusion of the conference, a depressing and, and dangerous moment in the Cold War. He was reminiscing about the war, as he and all the other surviving figures understandably did a great deal uh, after that conflict. And of course, he was speaking about someone who's dead and thus could not gainsay him, but who crucially never cowed him. He was probably also changing the subject away from the demise of the conference. Churchill replied to Clementine eight days later saying, quote, I am glad you had such an interesting dinner to meet General Marshall. I think we have made good friends with him. I've always had a great respect for his really outstanding qualities, if not as a strategist, as an organizer of armies, a statesman, and above all, a man. If not as a strategist. In my lecture tonight, I would like to examine Churchill's extraordinarily backhanded compliment to Marshall uh, and look at the grand strategy Marshall wanted to be adopted um, for winning World War II. For the US Army Chief of Staff needs to be a statesman and an organizer of armies and much else besides, but he also primarily 
needs to be America's chief military strategist. There is no more important duty for a chief of staff than to formulate the strategy by which America wins its wars. Did Marshall fall down on that area? As Churchill, Field Marshal Sir Alan Brooke, later, later Lord Alan Brooke, uh, makes it very clear in his diaries, and, um, and General Montgomery all privately believed that he did. All three believed he was not a good strategist because he consistently advocated a return to German-occupied Northwest Europe far earlier than they wanted to land there. So who was right? In my lecture tonight, I'll speak briefly about what everyone, including Churchill and Brooke and Monty, accepts um, that Marshall was superb at, creating a massive army virtually from scratch, dealing with Congress, the media and the president, sacking no fewer than 16 divisional commanders, uh, and so on. But I'll then concentrate on this major question, and indeed the only question hanging over his reputation, which is nonetheless the largest question imaginable. It's about the timing of Operation Overlord, which he wanted to take place as early as the fall of 1942, or failing that certainly in the calendar year 1943. For, as the distinguished military historian Elliot Cohen has stated, an invasion of France in 1942 or 1943 was, quote, a course of action pressed by the American chiefs of staff, which it now appears would probably have led to disaster. Does that therefore mean that despite all his other undoubted talents, George Marshall was a bad strategist and thus a bad chief of staff? Although I fully agree with Cohen, I have a personal theory about Marshall's oft-professed demands for a 1942 or 1943 cross-channel invasion, uh, which I cannot prove because no evidence can exist for it, but which I'd like to propound um, tonight once I've got all the other attributes of his outstanding war leadership firmly established in your minds. On the 9th of March, 1946, in a speech delivered at the Pentagon only four days after his Iron Curtain speech in Fulton, Missouri, Winston Churchill paid great tribute to Marshall, saying, There have been many occasions when a powerful state has wished to raise great armies, and with money and time and discipline and loyalty, that can be accomplished. Nevertheless, the rate at which the small American army of only a few hundred thousand men, not long before the war, created the mighty force of millions of soldiers is a wonder in military history. I was here two or three years ago and visited with General Marshall. I saw the creation of this mighty force, this mighty army, victorious in every theatre against the enemy in so short a time and from such a very small parent stock. This is an achievement which soldiers of every other country will always study with admiration and with envy. It was true. Marshall had increased the US armed forces by a factor of 40 in only four years from 200, fewer than 200,000, about 189,000 um, men in the US Army, uh, to, uh, to 8 million. When the war began, the US had the world's 14th largest army, uh, smaller even than Romania's. And by the, by the time it ended, uh, it had uh, 16 million people in uniform of one uh, sort or another, 8 million of them in the army. In the process, Marshall had become so central to the American war effort that, despite having been the prime proponent of Operation Overlord since its inception, and an early, as I pointed out, an early Operation Overlord, President Roosevelt told him, 
I could not sleep at night with you out of the country. And Dwight Eisenhower got the job of Supreme Allied Commander instead. Now, if Marshall had lifted so much as an eyebrow over Roosevelt's decision, the job would undoubtedly have been his. And with it, all the fame and the glory that is Eisenhower's um, today. If he had uh, become Supreme Allied Commander, then the memorials and mouths um, and medical centers, military bases, ships, aircraft carriers, uh, trophies, golf clubs, mountains, schools and colleges, tunnels, monuments, camps, state parks, plazas and boulevards, and the uh, executive office building next to the White House, uh, presently named after Eisenhower, would instead today be named after George C. Marshall. But he put his duty first, knowing that no one else could guide Congress and the press and uh, certainly jo uh, General Douglas MacArthur uh, out in the uh, Pacific, uh, or Admiral Ernest J. King, the highly rebarbative US uh, ch Navy Chief of Staff, and of course the President, in the way that he, Marshall, could, not even Eisenhower. And such an act of self-abnegation was a true mark of greatness. A graduate of the famed uh, Virginia Military Institute, after serving in the Spanish-American War in the Philippines, Marshall had gone on to become an excellent director of training and planning for the US First Division in World War I. He was involved in the planning of the highly successful 47-day Meuse-Argonne Offensive of September 1918, which only ended uh, with the German surrender in November 1918. He learned many important lessons and caught the eye of the commander of the American Expeditionary Force, General Jack Pershing, who made him his aide-de-camp after um, Germany's defeat. And he was, with, uh, he was with Pershing for four years after the war. Of course, the open warfare and the high maneuverability of the armies in the summer and fall of 1918 was very different from the static trench warfare of the four years before the Americans um, arrived in the spring of 1918. So the lessons that Marshall learnt from the Great War were very different from the ones that Churchill and Brooke and Monty, whose experiences had comprised mainly static trench warfare, had taken away from the same conflict. Last month I was in Plurgstert, um, no, automatically of course called by the British Tommies Plug Street, uh, in, um, in Belgium. And uh, that was where Winston Churchill was stationed for four months in the beginning of 1916. And throughout that period, the um, trench lines stayed totally static. They didn't move at all. And the whole of people were getting killed pretty much every day. Um, uh, but, but they weren't moving at all. Now, you don't get that in the Second World War. You don't get that anywhere. Even at Monte Cassino, um, there's no active um, theatre of war where the front lines stay totally static for as long as four months. Marshall learned plenty of lessons aside from the strategic ones, of course. He learned about what General Sir Ian Hamilton has called the Arctic loneliness of command, especially by watching his boss, uh, Blackjack Pershing. Years later, he recalled how Pershing had once leant back in his car as he returned to his headquarters at Chaumont after a long tour of inspection during the First World War. Um, and those who saw him took his attitude for discouragement. Um, 
And as he wrote to his wife, um, from that small incident, the rumour spread that things were going very badly. As he told Catherine, um, I cannot allow myself to get angry. That would be fatal. It would be too exhausting. My brain must be clear and I cannot afford to appear tired. It was astonishing that Marshall never did seem tired, considering the massive areas for which he had responsibility. And yet he had a highly ordered mind, a talent for total concentration on the matter before him, a skill at delegating once he had filleted the general staff of incompetence, um, leaving only his trusted lieutenants, and a redoubtable work ethic. This courtly Pennsylvanian gentleman with beautiful manners was incorruptible, single-minded and astonishingly calm considering the pressures on him. Few of the times when he had to slam his fist down on the desk during Joint Chiefs of Staff meetings, but when he did, his antagonist, usually the US Navy Chief of Staff Admiral uh, King, never failed to back off. In the interwar years, um, he was a planner in the War Department commanding the 15th Infantry Regiment in China for three years. He taught at the Army War College. He was commander at Fort Benning, where he modernized command procedures. He commanded District 1 of the Civilian Conservation Corps, and he commanded the 5th Brigade of the 3rd Infantry Division in Washington State. It was in July 1938 that he came back to the War Plans Division of the War Department and then became Deputy Chief of Staff. Though he never led troops in combat, he had a wide and comprehensive grounding in many aspects of military life before he got the top job, over the heads, as I mentioned, of many other generals. Moreover, many other generals who weren't expecting it. Marshall's first strategic decision after America entered the war was also his greatest. Indeed, perhaps the greatest act of world statesmanship in the 20th century, besides Churchill's decision to fight on against the Nazis in 1940. Marshall and President Roosevelt resisted the natural instincts of the American people, and uh, certainly the Anglophobes in the War Department, to punish Japan for its infamy, but instead to put the defeat of Germany first. Although attacked in the Pacific by the Japanese, the United States responded with a Germany-first policy, which landed a quarter of a million Allied troops in North Africa within a year. The first American air raid from England against Germany started even earlier, on the 4th of July, 1942. To take on the more powerful of your enemies first, despite Hitler not having provoked the war beyond uh, declaring war on America four days after Pearl Harbor, was a far-sighted act of Themistoclean greatness, even if Marshall was not happy about precisely where in the West the first blow was going to fall. For Marshall preferred a cross-channel attack into northwest France as soon as the forces could be built up under Operation Bolero. The torch landings, uh, Operation Torch Landings in North Africa, were therefore anathema to him and his planning staff. He didn't believe in encircling Germany under the peripheral strategy preferred by the British, which the Americans derided as a policy of scatterization. Some of the more anglophobic planners, of which there were no shortage, um, by the way, led by General Albert Wedemeyer, felt that the United States was being lured into the Mediterranean by the cynical, wily imperialist British, who needed to protect their bases there as well as their route through the Suez Canal to their Asian and Far Eastern colonies. 
They were similarly suspicious that Churchill wanted to invade Italy, not only to knock out Hitler's ally Mussolini, um, take him out of the war, but also to open up further operations across the Adriatic into the Balkans, uh, also apparently for selfish British ends. Although uh, Britain has never had any um, interests at all in the Balkans, um, nonetheless, this was a uh, this was a, a, a fear in the War Department. Marshall much preferred the more direct. Uh, route to Berlin via northwest France, which he hoped would result in a gigantic Clausewitzian battle of the decisive kind that he had helped plan in the uh, Meuse-Argonne region 24 years before. Indeed, he supposedly erupted in what was described as a rare but awesome rage uh, when he heard in the spring of 1942 that Brooke and Churchill were not serious about an early invasion of Europe, which he thought that they had actually agreed to um, before that, in, uh, when they came over to Washington in December 1941. Um, at least uh, um, Churchill came over, Brooke, Brooke stayed in Britain, but uh, he, of course, had uh, signed on to the policy before, um, before Churchill left. And so Marshall was sent to London to negotiate um, the strategy that July by FDR, who told him that, quote, it is of the highest importance that US ground troops be brought into action against the enemy in 1942. He didn't want an entire year to go by from, um, from the German declaration of war on America um, to the point where um, uh, American troops were going to fight back in the... Uh, in the Western Theatre. When Marshall discovered in London that the British Chiefs of Staff and Prime Minister were not about to support a second front in mainland Europe in 1942, thinking the Germans too strong and the Americans too untried, and anyhow too few in Britain at the time, he threatened to swing US strategy towards a Japan-first policy, um, directing 70% of America's resources there and 30% towards Europe, rather than the situation under the Germany First policy, which was almost exactly vice versa. Admiral King, who had always supported Jap Japan First anyhow, uh, which was always going to be, of course, a naval, um, a naval campaign primarily, was delighted. But Marshall was bluffing. There were no long-term plans for any such thing, and crucially, Marshall knew he did not have the president's support either. Knowing this, Churchill and Brooke were able to call his bluff, and much the same happened the next year with the decision taken at the Casablanca conference in January 1943 to attack Sicily that July. Marshall continued warning not to go into Italy after that because the terrain was a paradise for the defence and a nightmare for the offence, but he was overruled there too. Of course, it isn't always easy to work out precisely what was going through Marshall's mind at these vital meetings and moments, because he was not given to introspection or diarising, uh, let alone to grandstanding or ex post facto self-justification. He had the Olympian self-confidence to feel responsible to his conscience and his God, not to public opinion or the media. Soldiers, no less than politicians, wrote memoranda with an eye to history, their memoirs and posterity during World War II, as much as to convey information at the time of writing. Many of the times uh, in archives that I felt conscious of some subtle attempt 
uh, at manipulation going on, that I'm being spoken to as an historian rather than merely eavesdropping on the correspondence of others, especially when the situation on the ground seems to bear little relation to what's being described in the letters and the memos. Working in George uh, Marshall's archives at VMI is different, however. He didn't write war memoirs and remained genuinely modest about his achievements in a way that Montgomery, Mark Clark, and especially Lord Mountbatten were unable to be, uh, ultimately to the detriment of their own reputations. He was built on a different scale of greatness than they. Um, the mention of Mark Clark, who, who Marshall chose and promoted, prompts me to mention that, um, of course, there are many other generals who largely owed their promotions to Marshall, including Jacob Devers, George Patton, Leslie McNair, and Omar Bradley, not to mention um, Dwight Eisenhower. He was a good picker of, a picker of talent. When America entered the war, the former British Chief of Imperial General Staff, Field Marshal Sir John Dill, the um, CIGS who preceded um, um, Alan Brooke, wrote to Washington, sorry, from Washington to Brooke, never have I seen a country so utterly unprepared for war and so soft. The British did not rate highly America's hastily raised conscript armies, their tactical doctrine or their efficiency. And they didn't believe that the US AAF's, um, they didn't support the US AAF's belief in daylight bombing of German cities and didn't believe that um, it could lead to anything but massacre. Churchill didn't share the British general's doubts and pessimism, however. His extensive reading about the American Civil War convinced him that once the nation was fully engaged, extraordinary productive capacity would be unleashed as well as the vast armies recruited in a country moreover protected by its oceans from the kind of disruption suffered by British industry. Churchill was soon proved right. While in 1940, the US produced less than half the amount of munitions produced by the UK, in 1941, it was two thirds, in 1942, twice as much, in 1943, nearly thrice, and in 1944, almost four times as much. That in, in, uh, in such a short period of time, in those three years. In 1941, Britain had produced 59% of her maximum military output in the war, the United States only 12%. Overall, 13.4 million munition workers in America produced four times more than the 7.8 million British ones. Whereas in 1942, one-tenth of British munitions came from America, by 1943 to 44, this was over a quarter, and in certain important areas, up to a half. This meant that when it came to strategy making, um, by the time of the Washington Conference of May and June 1943, Marshall had the whip hand over the British and was able to impose his own time frame for Operation Overlord of May 1944, which in the event only slipped one month because of the lack of landing craft. The hard-fought nature of the strategic debates does not mean, however, that Elliot Roosevelt, um, FDR's son, was being honest when he wrote his book As He Saw It, which claimed to report his father's view of Churchill. If there's one American general that Winston can't abide, it's General Marshall, Elliot suggested FDR said during the Tehran conference in November 1943. And needless to say, it's because Marshall's right. Small wonder that the Roosevelt family abhorred the book 
And Felix Frankfurter stressed the complete unreliability of this account of the Roosevelt-Churchill relations. Churchill, in fact, liked and admired Marshall very much, and uh, even when they were disagreeing most strongly, and one suspects that the word he in the title of As He Saw It refers to Elliot Roosevelt rather than his father. In early April 1945, Churchill had the South African Prime Minister, young Christian Smuts, staying at Chequers. After dining off plover's eggs brought by the uh, Chief of the Air Staff, Sir Charles Portal, and the finest South African brandy brought by Smuts, Churchill opined that, quote, there was no greater exhibition of power in history than that of the American army fighting the Battle of the Ardennes with its left hand and advancing from island to island towards Japan with its right. The fact that America was capable of such extraordinary feats was largely down to George Marshall, whom Churchill generously hailed as the organiser of victory. Um, a wonderful phrase which he stole from the French Revolution. Um, it was originally uh, given to Lazare Carnot. The British were fortunate that in both Marshall and Eisenhower, they had two such good friends of Britain at the top of the US military hierarchy. From early 1945, both men were ordering their respective staffs to go through their records, deleting the more extreme anti-British statements, uh, which uh, suggests there must have been enough venom there to worry them. Both men understood the uh, problems of coalition warfare so pertinently summed up by Churchill's phrase to Brooke that the only thing worse than fighting with allies is fighting without them. Churchill was ultimately a better friend to Marshall even than Eisenhower, whom Marshall had appointed to every senior position he had held from September 1939 onwards. As you'll hear in my next lecture um, on Tuesday the 17th of January, uh, which I hope you can all make, Eisenhower, which is on Eisenhower, uh, Eisenhower had not commanded troops in action himself and so had no chance to distinguish himself on the battlefield, as he undoubtedly would have if he had. He needed a patron in the War Department and found a ready one in Marshall, who had himself been far from the most senior general available to FDR um, when he had been appointed. Yet, on the 14th of June 1951, when Senator Joseph McCarthy accused Marshall of, quote, having made common cause with Stalin, uh, he said this in the Senate, in, quote, a conspiracy so immense and an infamy so black as to dwarf any such venture in the history of man, not given to understatement, uh, Senator McCarthy, uh, Ike did not support Marshall. Indeed, he cut a supportive paragraph out of a speech he intended to give in the coming election campaign. Two years after McCarthy's speech in, uh, sorry, two months, two months after McCarthy's speech in August 1951, Churchill published the fourth volume of his History of the Second World War entitled The Hinge of Fate. He felt no need to kowtow to the rabid, red-baiting senator from Wisconsin. In the book, he included an account of the moment in June 1942, the famous um, cathartic moment for him, when he and Brooke had been in the Oval Office with Marshall and Roosevelt when the president had to break the terrible news to him of the fall of Tobruk. Uh, Nothing could exceed the sympathy and chivalry of my two friends, 
Churchill wrote of Marshall and Roosevelt, there were no reproaches, not an unkind word was spoken. What can we do with he to help, said Roosevelt. I replied at once, give us as many Sherman tanks as you can spare and ship them to the Middle East as quickly as possible. They were sent by Marshall, denuding the American army of them, as uh, well as 100 self-propelled guns, and um, the ones that got through to Egypt played a large part in helping to win the Battle of El Alamein five months later. And one, when one um, convoy of them was sunk, Marshall immediately sent another of exactly the same uh, number of, uh, of tanks and self-propelled guns. As Churchill wrote in his book, a friend in need is a friend indeed. In that volume, and its two successors, published while McCarthy was keeping up his foul attack on Marshall's honour and patriotism. Churchill lost no opportunity to praise Marshall, calling him, for example, far-sighted and devoted, even as his own president and former lieutenant stayed shamefully silent. Coming from the man who had opposed communism from the Russian Revolution onwards and who had tried to strangle Bolshevism in its cradle, sending troops to fight Lenin and Trotsky while McCarthy was still an 11-year-old schoolboy, uh, it was an invaluable endorsement of Marshall at a difficult time for him, especially as Churchill had become uh, prime minister again by then. In June 1953, um, at the time of the uh, Queen's coronation, present Queen's coronation, while McCarthy was still attacking Marshall and even preparing to investigate the US Army for un-American activities, Churchill stepped out of the procession down the nave of Westminster Abbey at the end of the service, thereby holding up the whole line of royalty, clergy, statesmen, nobility, to stop and shake Marshall warmly by the hand. A friend in need is a friend indeed. So what are we to make of Marshall's ceaseless advocacy for an early cross-channel attack in 1942 and 1943, at a time when the Wehrmacht was still immensely powerful in the West and had not been defeated on the Eastern Front, while the Luftwaffe had co uh, complete control of the skies over Normandy and the Pas de Calais, moreover at a time when the US Army had not been blooded in battles that they lost against the Germans, such as Kazarine Pass? and when the U-boats were prowling undetected in the Atlantic before the Enigma naval code was successfully broken into for the second time and the Battle of the Atlantic won, which didn't happen until July, August 1943. What are we to make of his demands for a major assault across the Channel before the Mulberry Harbours were ready, before the Channel had been swept um, clear of the German Navy, before the pipeline under the ocean was built, before, more, most of all, there were more than a handful of American divisions in southern England to take part in it. Was Marshall deadly serious about wanting such an attack in 1942, regardless of the raid on Dieppe uh, that August, where 60% of the 6,086 men who made it ashore were either killed or wounded or captured? My very strong suspicion, and it can only be a suspicion because needless to say Marshall could hardly vouchsafe it to anyone, is that of course so talented a strategist as George Marshall with his VMI education, his great war experience, his interwar senior staff work, did not believe in a cross-channel attack in the autumn of 1942 at all. But he did believe in keeping the British and his own president up to the mark, as well as keeping the Pacific first lobby quiet, 
He knew uh, he was going to be outvoted by the British and FDR, perhaps for years, but that only by constantly promising to open a second front as soon as possible could the Soviets be encouraged to continue making the huge sacrifices they were making and not to pursue a separate peace. Above all, by pressing for an immediate cross-channel attack, he could keep the pressure up in the War Department and the rest of the US Army, Navy and Air Force at peak efficiency for when American production and Russian success in the East could finally overawe the British and persuade the president. Only by seeming to want an immediate clash against what was undoubtedly the best army in the world at that time could Marshall focus the energies of the Allies onto properly preparing for one. Of course he knew that ultimately his bluff would not be called in either 1942 or 1943. He controlled the timetable for how many US troops arrived in Britain, without whom the operation could not take place anyhow. He knew the vast amounts of stores that needed to be shipped over once the ocean was made safe through victory in the Battle of the Atlantic in the summer of 1943. He knew the president's mind and the way it was slowly turning. Brooke and Marshall... Um, sorry, Brooke and Churchill, were wrong to denigrate his contribution as a strategist. The one set of people, his own staff, with whom Marshall might have wanted to discuss his genuine plans, were precisely the ones he couldn't breathe a word to, since he would not uh, have wanted to demoralise them, which explains the total lack of diary or memoir evidence to support my theory. I believe... Yeah, helpful, that. Um, <laughs> I believe that Marshall was perfectly happy to look like the fire-eating proponent of an early offensive, since he knew he would be outvoted by the British and by his own president, and so was in no danger of having to make good on his demands. Furthermore, he couldn't have cared less about the verdict of history on his strategic tents, because all that mattered to him was getting it right. If he'd gone meekly along with the British refusal to cross the Channel in 1942, 1943, rather than showing his in my view, manufactured, rare but awesome rage, he would have found it far harder to nail them to the sticking post in 1944. When he did need to get his way, such as over Operation Anvil, invading the south of France in August 1945, or preventing Churchill adopting the Balkan strategy in 1945, he had little problem in doing so. George Marshall did not mind being outvoted over his early cross-channel proposals because he secretly recognised, as well as everyone else, that an over-hasty return to the continent could be a disaster that would set back victory in the West by years. He feigned disappointment, anger and resentment in order to strengthen his hand as time went on and in order to keep the Allies actively working towards an eventual Operation Overlord, which was eventually delivered very largely down to him at the right place at the right time and in the right strength. The man in the street, insofar as he's ever heard of General George C. Marshall at all, only knows of him because of the post-war Marshall plan, the economic salvation of Europe. I believe he should be known for an altogether more ambitious, secret plan for victory in World War II, albeit one that circumstances dictated he had to keep entirely to himself. Churchill did Marshall a grave disservice with his words, if not as a strategist in that letter to Clementine. For Marshall was just as great a strategist as anyone and was a key architect of the strategy that was adopted and that was ultimately victorious. He should be a household name in America today, rather than simply being known as the author of the post-war economic plan. But fairness is sadly not a feature of history. And the fact that George Marshall was per personally oblivious to fame was not a small part 
of his enduring greatness. Thank you very much indeed. <clears throat> Um, we have uh, some, 10 minutes or so for um, questions and, uh, and answers. So if you could, uh, anybody who wants to ask one, could you queue up in front of one of these, um, Mike, sorry, line up in front of... Uh, <laughs> um, thank you very much. Good evening, Mr. Roberts. My name is Sandra Crystal. Uh, I conduct the History Book Club here at the Historical Society, and I'm delighted to say in October we will be discussing your masterful Masters and Commanders. How very, very pleasing. Thank you yes. very much indeed. <laughs> uh, um, it's interesting. I came here tonight because I wanted to hear you flesh out a little bit more about Marshall, because after reading the book several times. I really, I really get a feeling about Brooke and Churchill and Roosevelt. And Marshall was a little blurry. Um, I want to use the word bland, but... Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll let you have blurry, but not bland. Okay. <laughs> and, and what I'd like to uh, ask you to elaborate a little bit is about Anvil, uh, because that operation was another big... Uh, um, discussion between the British and the Americans. The British, Brooke almost wanted to just chuck the whole thing. And yes, I, I did mention Anvil at the end of the speech, where, yeah. I, where I pointed out, um, it's a very good and important um, uh, aspect. I pointed out the uh, Operation Anvil, originally called Operation Dragoon, was the American attack on southern France on the 15th of August. Um, 1944. Uh, you've got a particular yeah, question, a question about it. Okay, yes. sorry. My question is, in light of your saying here tonight that he was this good strategist, um, he pushed for Anvil, and of course it was enacted, and there's big, um, there's a ma major discussion with historians as to whether it was really A, necessary, or did that much for yes. over, after Overlord. Absolutely. So that's my question. Great, thank you very much. Um, yes, as I, uh, uh, as I say, the, um, the question is really amongst historians is whether or not it was ultimately necessary. You'd already landed um, a huge number of troops in, um, in Northwest France. So what was the point in coming down uh, into Southern France? It was, of course, a very successful operation. Um, the uh, the uh, quite a few um, Germans were, 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 were cooped up there, um, but did it actually make the uh, make any huge difference strategically? I don't think it did. I think it was a uh, it was a mistake for the United States to have insisted on um, on Anvil. So there, you're you're right. It was a um, I should have included Anvil as a critique of uh, of Marshall's strategy. By and large, I think Marshall really was a fantastic strategist, but, um, but you're right, Operation um, Anvil was a, it wasn't a disaster because it went well, but it was a waste of, uh, of resources that could have been more useful um, in cleaning out the Scheldt, uh, for example, and uh, relieving Antwerp. Um, but thank you very much indeed for your book club um, getting my uh, book. Um, I've also written a book about Napoleon, uh, by the way, that you might want to... Um... Uh, sir? 
Uh, yes, sir. About 15 years ago, Forrest Pogue edited a monumental book of uh, writings of uh, George C. Marshall, and I think Walter Lefebvre wrote an extensive uh, introduction on that. And I don't, I had read part of it, but in that book, which is probably his greatest compilation of his writings, uh, um, is there any evidence, uh, you know, in regard to your, you know, your theory about the... Uh, uh, on I, this, I, I mean, I, I have all six volumes of Pogue's um, edition of Marshall's uh, papers and all the um, uh, biography, of course, that he, that he wrote, uh, several volumes of the biography he wrote on Marshall. And uh, unfortunately, I have found absolutely no evidence whatsoever for uh, to back up my uh, theory. Otherwise, I promise you, I would have mentioned it. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Sir. Thank you for a wonderful talk. Um, why did Eisenhower abandon his supporter, Marshall, when he got into the position of power? Um, because politics is a filthy trade. Um, I think that's, as, uh, that's the best. I mean, the, the, it, it, it now seems pretty astonishing quite how successful this uh, appalling red-baiting um, uh, uh, Actually, I'm not sure right, right now that it is so surprising, come to think of it. Um, but, uh, uh, nonetheless, um, politics then and now was a, was a, a, a dirty business. And it was, uh, for my money, the, the lowest point in uh, the political career of otherwise a very great man, Dwight Eisenhower, I'm looking forward to talking to you about in, uh, in January. But, um, yeah, he, he let his friend just... Uh, just sort of be attacked without coming to his defense, where he was the one man who, if he had defended him at that stage, um, could have uh, could have really made a huge difference. Of course, he was a Republican, whereas Marshall was a Democrat, but um, they had been so close together in the war, and they were personal friends, and he admired Marshall unreservedly. And, uh, and yet, I'm afraid, on this occasion, as I said in my speech, um, I'm, I'm afraid he, he showed cowardice. Mr. Roberts, you mentioned in, in passing Douglas MacArthur. I wonder if you could expand upon Marshall's relationship with Douglas MacArthur and in your theme of Marshall as strategist, what did Marshall have to do with the strategy uh, in the Pacific? Yes, um, it was a difficult relationship because, needless to say, Douglas MacArthur thought that Douglas MacArthur should be U.S. Uh, Army Chief of Staff, which he had been, uh, of course, earlier in his, uh, his career, but he certainly thought that he ought to be the, uh, the presiding brain and genius over uh, American strategy in the Second World War. And, um, and Marshall knew that MacArthur um, felt that way, and he found him one of the most difficult um, problems that he had to deal with. But he did deal with him extremely well. I mean, it helped that for much of the war, MacArthur was in Australia. Um, but uh, nonetheless, it was, um, it was, he was the recipient, of course, of endless letters by MacArthur demanding more uh, support in, uh, in the recapture of the Philippines. Um, but, um, but Marshall had committed himself to the Germany first policy, and uh, historians will argue whether 70% or 75% of US um, resources were, um, were directed to um, Germany and, um, and the Western theater. So um, Marshall was, was happy to give MacArthur as much as he could, but, um, but he wasn't going to overturn the strategies just because of the strictures of, um, of Douglas uh, MacArthur. Um, he, uh, 
there, there were there were um, lots of um, of rows, like there were about everything else to do with Douglas MacArthur. Um, but he did also, and this is one of this is another strand of the greatness of George Marshall, appreciate the uh, qualities of of Douglas MacArthur as well, who who was a great general. So it was um, um, he wasn't obviously in that list of people who had been promoted by by Marshall because uh, MacArthur was very much his own man. But uh, I think that Marshall did um, did admire MacArthur, um, albeit from afar. So. Yeah, I think uh, you have an interesting thesis about why Marshall was pushing for the cross-channel invasion rather than putting efforts into, you know, the Middle East. But... <clears throat> Wouldn't also that strategy have been to minimize or put a break on the British pushing for uh, the strategy, following a strategy in the Middle East by insisting on an earlier cross-channel operation? Uh, yes, that might have been in the back of his mind. Um, although, really, uh, the, um, the fighting in the Middle East, if you take Middle East to mean Syria, uh, Iran, Iraq, Rather no, no, than no just I just North mean Africa. the North Atlantic, North Africa, the North Africa the, and Italy, the North African literal yeah. and Italy. Yes. Um, well, this was the great question: is to, to what extent did you put men into Operation Bolero, which was the build-up prior to Operation uh, Overlord, the cross-channel attack, and to what extent did you um, send them off in dribs and drabs on the scatterization uh, principle of, um, of fighting along the North African littoral and then going to Sicily, Italy, and so on, um, and uh, Operation Anvil, as the lady mentioned earlier, um, and, um, and they had to do both. Uh, I think that the way in which they built up an army of well over a million men, um, and by D plus 20, you had those, uh, that entire force in, um, in northwest France, was a miracle of, um, of organization, apart from anything else, but also of, uh, of uh, strategic planning. Um, but to have been able to have done that at the same time as fighting those three other campaigns, um, completely exhausted the, um, the the British. I mean, we, even though we had the support of um, many millions of, uh, of the Commonwealth troops, uh, India, for example, um, Volunteer Army of India, um, was the largest army that the world's ever seen. Largest volunteer army that the world's ever seen. Um, but uh, it couldn't be, uh, it couldn't be deployed um, as effectively as, uh, as it should have been, really. So, Yes, I agree with you. Um, Marshall was was keen to build up Operation Bolero as as um, large as possible, but I don't think it was in order to minimise what was going on in Italy because he had to do both. Well, I think he had to do both, but but I mean, you know, if if he had given in and and not pushed the overlord, then it would have been uh, easier for Churchill and the British to put even more emphasis into the Mediterranean. Yes, yes, I think that um, helps to support my thesis. Thank you. <laughs> uh, can I also just say that a great friend of mine and a member here, uh, General Josiah Bunting, is writing a biography of Marshall that's going to be published in April. And uh, I know he's coming here to speak uh, on, uh, on this. He's, uh, it's going to be a wonderful book, and I really do recommend um, you to, uh, to read it. So... Uh, do you think that uh, Marshall had the personality that uh, Eisenhower had 
uh, in dealing with uh, uh, the uh, generals like um, uh, Montgomery and Patton uh, uh, to get the most out of them as opposed to replacing them? Well, that was really Ike's job, uh, much more than his. He... Um, he did replace generals. He, he sacked um, 16 of, uh, of them, as I mentioned, um, if he and the commander on the spot didn't think they were up to the job. But um, with regard to, um, to keeping people like Patton um, and Monty um, uh, pointing in roughly the same direction, I mean, they, there, are, there are occasions when they'd like to have gone at each other um, uh, more than the Germans, one suspects, at some stages. Um, Nonetheless, uh, that was that was Eisenhower's um, uh, sort of chief of the board, um, uh, sort of chairman of the board kind of role in uh, in the Second World War, which I'm going to be speaking about in uh, in, in January. I guess uh, what I'm sort of getting at was, do you think Marshall could have handled that role? No, he was in Washington. Um, it was very much the uh, Supreme Allied Commander's job to keep his. Uh, his generals under control, which he did do, uh, despite all the all the sort of uh, bitchiness and uh, the way in which some of these great generals of the Second World War actually acted like a bunch of fifteen-year-old schoolgirls. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Andrew Roberts. We look forward to your return uh, again and again. And thank you all for coming. Just a reminder that he will be signing books directly on the Central Park West Side, and you can purchase the books in the same place. We look forward to seeing you all again. Thank you so much. Good night.